When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about Libya. After months of peace talks, the country has a new government. It's a positive, even remarkable turnaround. Libya has been in chaos since 2011, when a NATO-led military campaign ousted Muammar Gaddafi. For several years, the country was divided between two governments and two warring parties. An internationally recognised government sat in the capital Tripoli in western Libya, a rival administration was based in the eastern city of Tobruk. Turkey and Qatar supported the military coalition aligned to Tripoli, forces loyal to the eastern Libya government, the Tobruk government, which were led by Khalifa Haftar. They were backed by Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, plus Russian security contractors. About a year and a half ago, Haftar's forces had advanced to just outside Tripoli. Parts of the city saw heavy fighting, including drone and aerial strikes, killing thousands of people and displacing more than 100,000. The warlord Khalifa Haftar is attacking a strategic airport east of the capital, Tripoli. A barrage of rockets strike jet fuel, tanks and aircraft at Tripoli's international airport. The latest attack on civilian infrastructure in the battle for the capital. Well, we begin with breaking news out of Libya. The UN-recognized government says it will accept an offer of military support from Turkey. In response, Turkey upped its support to Tripoli forces who pushed back Haftar. The front lines shifted to central Libya. Then the two sides signed a ceasefire agreement in October of last year. In November, the UN brought together 75 delegates for peace talks. These included representatives of not only the two sides, but also of women's groups, Libya's tribes, and Qaddafi loyalists. After several months of negotiations, delegates in early February nominated a prime minister, Abdul Hamid Debeba, a businessman from Western Libya. Mohamed Mnefi, who is from Eastern Libya, will head a new three-person presidency council. Haftar has embraced the winning ticket, as have powerful politicians from Western Libya. External backers of both sides have all signaled their support. Last week, Libyan parliamentarians, 
which had been divided in two rival blocs, held a joint meeting in CERT. They approved the new government. On Monday, the prime minister and his ministers were sworn in. Libya's new unity government has been sworn into office in a ceremony in Tobruk. Sign of hope for a nation that suffered years of conflict. But the challenges ahead are immense. The new government in Libya is good news. In principle, it unifies the country and it should hold power until elections in late 2021. Still, there are some big challenges. To talk about all this, we're very happy to welcome Claudia Gazzini. Claudia is Crisis Group's Libya expert. She's covered the country for many years. She's also worked for the UN mission to Libya. She's a hugely respected voice on the conflict. Claudia, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you, Richard. Hello, Naz. Nice to be back. So, Claudia, this is good news, right? I mean, is it is it the beginning of an end to Libya's crisis or is that premature? I mean, absolutely. This is fantastic news. I think very few people would have thought six months ago when the ceasefire was signed that we would be six months later at this point. I mean, this is a country that has been divided for over six years and has had two governments, rival uh, parliamentary blocs, rival military coalitions uh, at war with one another. And uh, it is nothing short of a huge accomplishment, the fact that today Libyan stakeholders agree to put their differences aside and move forward, turn the chapter of the war um, over and uh, and work towards reconciliation. And what we've seen, I mean, the fast-paced developments over the past week, we saw uh, the parliament convening for the first time in six years uh, in a historical sort of location in central Libya. The nominated government traveled to eastern Libya to the city of Tobruk and, and attend this um, swearing-in ceremony. On Tuesday, furthermore, we saw the handover of power from the Fayez Siraj-led government based in Tripoli, which has been in power since late 2015, to the new authorities. It was smooth, uh, it was festive, and there was no, no, no trouble. Of course, the hurdles are huge, but getting to where we got today, I mean, we have to recognize this is a, a tremendous achievement. And Claudia, in this context, what happens now to the two rival governments? The fact that the, H, the House of Representatives... The, the, the Libyan parliament convened uh, in, a, in a joint session and officially endorsed the, the, this new executive means that the previous government uh, that they had endorsed since 2014, the rival government based in eastern Libya, should dissolve. Uh, on, on Tuesday, we saw the Tripoli-based government officially handing over uh, power to, to Dbeiba. So, uh, so Dbeiba and the head of the presidency council, Mohamed Munefi, went to the prime minister's office in Tripoli. There was the military band there playing, flags hoisted. And Siraj, with his four deputies, met face to face and gave very soft and kind speeches, respecting each other. And surprisingly, Siraj drove off in his own private car and uh, and left the prime minister's office to Dbeiba. So, I mean, as I'm saying this, it's 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 rather um, it gives me the goosebumps to think that this would actually uh, happen in Libya. You know, the last time we had a peaceful handover of, a th- of power in Libya was 2014. Uh, so it is it is remarkable that that this would happen. 
So you talked about Siraj uh, handing over, but what about Khalifa Haftar? I mean, why has he accepted this? Didn't he back another candidate during the, the, the sort of UN broker talks? And I mean, I remember we talked about this so much over recent years. Only 18 months ago, he was on the outskirts of Tripoli. People thought there was no way he would accept being anything less than president or at least commander of the armed forces. And yet he's also sort of fallen into line behind this new government. And what's, I mean, what, why? How has he accepted that? I mean, first of all, he lost a war, right? Uh, his forces uh, in April 2019 launched this military offensive against Tripoli. They were just five kilometers from the from the prime minister's office. I remember touring the front lines just a, a year ago, but they really couldn't take over the city. And that war was a miscalculation. Turkey's intervention on the side of the Tripoli-based authorities managed to push back Haftar and regain over time territory. So Come June 2020, Haftar was defeated in Tripoli. Also, his foreign backers realized that this dream of him taking power through a military offensive would never concretely happen. He remained their military ally, but he was no longer the winning horse. So Haftar realized that he had to support some kind of political process and uh, his foreign backers too. And, that, and that's not, I mean, we shouldn't take that for granted because remember, just over a year ago when he felt very boisterous, remember Haftar made an announcement saying essentially, I'm ready to take over as a military commander. And he made this speech uh, where he said, I asked the Libyan people uh, to, 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 to give me confidence uh, and, uh, and, you know, let me lead essentially. But the defeat in, in the war in Tripoli created the conditions for having to accept a political solution. Now, added on to that, uh, there are other um, sort of causal elements. First of all, the end of the Trump administration. Remember that when Trump gave a sort of orange light to Haftar's offensive on Tripoli, it was key. Uh, it was key for him to sort of bet on a military solution. With the new administration in Washington, there was no possibility of playing these games any longer. So uh, people and Haftar himself and his advisors probably understood that uh, the change of administration meant that um, you know things had to go forward uh, differently. Uh, also, the external backers have since sort of recalibrated, and the UAE has, you know, apparently pulled out its forces. He was in he he was and is, I think, in in dire financial uh, in a dire financial situation. Remember, for the Eastern authorities and for this military coalition headed by Haftar to sustain itself, they need money, but they're not internationally recognized. So for the past five years, they've been funding themselves through an, uh, you know, a complicated um, digital funding system that kind of hit the wall. So they realized that there was no possibility to continue. And also Libyans really wanted to turn the page uh, and really wanted to return to a more stable, stable life where basic services uh, were provided because living conditions had deteriorated. So there was also a strong sort of demand to, uh, to move on. Claudia, was it that Haftar lost the war or was it more that he just didn't win it? Right? I mean, he, as you say, he couldn't take Tripoli. His forces were pushed back. But also the forces that were advancing from the West, uh, the Tripoli aligned forces, they only went to a certain point in central Libya, right? I mean, they didn't advance into eastern Libya. There was this sort of military stalemate. And it was this stalemate that created space for what's just happened. Uh, yes, you're, I mean, you're right to point out that, uh, you know, uh, n neither side 
won nor nor lost. There was for a very brief moment um, uh, the possibility that the Tripoli-based forces with Turkish backing would proceed into eastern Libya. And people were talking about launching this full-fledged sort of military offensive into Haftar's uh, territories. But I think the, U- the US played a key role there in saying, wait, 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 uh, everybody calm down. Uh, the Egyptians were threatening to intervene in the Libyan war. Uh, had these Tripoli-based forces gone into eastern Libya, and President Sisi said, you know, uh, Eastern Libya is a red line, so we will not accept Turkish backed forces into Eastern Libya because it's a national security threat, and that really prompted the the the, the Trump administration uh, in, in its final days to to step in and also uh, and calm both Ankara and and the Libyans backed by Ankara, uh, so that helped. The options once once the front lines had cemented in in central Libya, the options were either stay like that, a divided country. Each would have been entirely dependent on its on its foreign backers um, with the risk of uh, continued stoppage of oil production. Remember, uh, Libya is an oil producing country. It depends entirely on its oil revenues. Most of the oil facilities are based in eastern Libya. So that's that status quo of a divided Libya with Haftar forces still in control of the uh, oil revenues could have potentially led to long blockages of uh, of oil exports. So that could have been, you know, one scenario. And the other scenario was, well, you know, trying to to bridge the divides, move beyond the status quo, not accept a divided Libya under the hegemonic influence of of other, you know, the, the two respective out camps outside backers um, and actually push forward the idea of a government of national unity and the reunification of the country. I mean, it was an easy choice rationally, right? Uh, but it also meant that for, 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 uh, for the Eastern authorities, Haftar and Aguila Sala and, and those that were supporting the defensive, it actually meant that they had to, you know, accept changing their narrative about Tripoli, change their narrative about the Tripoli-based forces, no longer call them terrorists. Uh, so there, there had to be a shift of perspective there. But also from the Tripoli-based uh, constituencies, you know, they've obviously blamed Haftar for the war, for the deaths uh, that this uh, year-long war has created. And not everybody was very happy to have Haftar or his proxies as a negotiating partner. And still today, you know, some people say, really, are we making peace with these with these individuals that are just a year ago launched war against us? Uh, so, you know, not all of them have, have really accepted this, but the majority, the vast majority has accepted this. So, Claudia, we've talked a little bit about Haftar and some of his external backers, but what about the the the, uh, the Tripoli side? So, I mean, I remember when Turkey sort of stepped up its support for Tripoli-aligned forces, you know, it caused a lot of concern, Turkey sending in military advisors, drones, and sort of what were widely perceived to be these Islamist Syrian militias to sort of fight alongside Libyan allies. But, you know, looking back a year and a half ago, Things now look very different. I mean, is is Ankara can Ankara reasonably view this as a success? Uh, yes, at the time uh, when Ankara decided to intervene alongside the Tripoli-based forces, it was very adamant to say this is a legal intervention. We're doing it on the table, not under the table. Signed a security agreement with Tripoli. And essentially, you know, the rationale for Turkey's intervention was that they did absolutely did not want 
uh, Haftar victory in the capital. They didn't want the demise of that uh, of the government in Tripoli because a Haftar victory in Tripoli would have entailed uh, the victory of Ankara's foes. Uh, it would have meant the UAE. Uh, gaining a foothold in uh, in North Africa. It would have meant uh, President Sisi in Egypt uh, having a direct influence uh, in Tripoli in the capital and, and shaping the future of the country. So this was really the reason for, for Turkey's uh, intervention. And yes, it was successful. Uh, it was successful in uh, defending the capital, providing military aid to the Tripoli-based authorities uh, amidst a lot of criticism because Tripoli brought in maybe a a hundred or so of its own forces, but in the thousands, uh, Syrian pro-Ankara fighters to do the the groundwork. So this was very controversial at the time, this legitimization of, of, of mercenary forces in Libya. Nothing new. We've had, you know, sub-Saharan African uh, armed groups and mercenary forces in Libya fighting on both sides of the divide for years. But the scale and the, uh, you know, and the international involvement in bringing in mercenary forces is what uh, really was shocking at the time. But it was successful and and, uh, Turkey could have, you know, pushed on. There were a lot of people in Ankara and I remember traveling uh, there and there were a lot of people there saying that they weren't openly saying it wasn't a defensive war, but they were, were signaling that, you know, it couldn't stop at Tripoli. And, and essentially there needed to be some kind of defeat of Haftar forces. But fortunately that didn't happen. After, you know, when the war ended, Turkey's position with regards to the peace settlement and the political process was, uh, was very clear. They said, we want a new unity government to replace Siraj. Their red line was a maritime agreement that they had signed with the Siraj government. So they wanted this to remain in force and not to be abolished. And they wanted no political power for, for Haftar, essentially. And they got that. So the peace, you know, the peace talks led to the creation of a new government headed by Beba, who happens to be uh, an ally of, uh, of Turkey, a close friend. They so far got the maritime agreement to remain in force. This is a delimitation agreement of Mediterranean waters, which Turkey sees as strategic for its own ambitions in uh, in the Mediterranean. And and thirdly, they got a peace process where, you know, Haftar was not, uh, you know, uh, overrepresented in the peace talks. And we've seen uh, a change of narrative uh, in Ankara uh, now, not only with regards to Libya, but also with regards to its former foes. During the war in Libya, you know, Ankara was always lashing out against Egypt. Uh, President Sisi was always, uh, you know, called the, uh, uh, you know, the one who carries out the coup. Uh, and and the narrative against the Emirates was uh, constant. Uh, but now it it's all toned down, you know, and that's that's remarkable. So, Claudia, I don't want to spend too long on the external aspects to, to the war because, you know, this is a success for Libyans and we should get back to the to, to the process and what happens next in Libya. But let me just ask, before we do that, uh, about the, the the Russians who have also been military company. Wagner, uh, close to the Kremlin, has been also supporting Haftar. Uh, you know, what what are, are they are they going to sort of support now? 
the new government, uh, whatever sort of unified security forces emerge, if they do, I mean, what are the Russians hoping for in, in, in Libya? The Russians have so far uh, Moscow, let's say. Mo- let's distinguish between Moscow and Wagner. Uh, Moscow so far has played ball, has shown support for the peace process. They've really on a political level engaged with both sides of the divide throughout these years, right? So now Wagner is another thing. Is my private security contractors that were brought in to fight alongside and help Haftar forces uh, uh, you know, six months into the war uh, in Tripoli, uh, because it became started to become clear that Haftar forces alone were not able to make that definitive push uh, into the capital. Uh, but we were talking at the time about a few hundreds, maybe a thousand, maximum two thousand uh, private military contractors. Now, with the withdrawal of Haftar forces from Tripoli, they also withdrew. So they're stationed now in in central Libya. Now. I, I say it's hard to guess how how Moscow uh, will 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 behave going forward. Uh, there's a wishful think the thinking going around in Washington as well uh, that sort of imagine that that sees Moscow as willing to to play ball and actually pulling out um, Wagner forces once there is a government of national unity that has the buy-in of Haftar and has the buy-in of the Eastern constituencies and has the buy-in of the foreign backers uh, of Haftar. And also there's the issue that Moscow is not very happy with its alliance with Haftar. Uh, In my conversations with um, uh, Haftar military officials, informal conversations, it comes across that uh, they, they are dissatisfied with this dependency on the Russians and Russian and, and, the, and the Wagner operatives don't really see the Haftar base forces or officers as good partners. Uh, they, they're not high value military officers. So it's a difficult relationship to start with. So I think there, there is room for a conversation about their withdrawal, perhaps as part of a broader conversation that will require U.S. buy-in, and so negotiating so sanction relief in exchange for Russia's good behavior on Libya. There is there is room for that, I would say. And Claudia, if I can ask a bit more about the peace process, and you gave a pretty remarkable description of, of what's recently taken place. Was this a success for the U.N.? And what is your sense of why these talks worked where previous ones failed so so dramatically? Absolutely. Uh, The UN was key. I wouldn't say the UN. I mean, UN is an an anonymous uh, term. The the path that the previous UN special representative, Ghassan Salame, laid out before uh, his resignation uh, a year ago, and what was accomplished by his deputy who stepped in, Stephanie Williams, was key. It was a, a multi-track approach. I mean, our emphasis in this conversation today is is uh, on the politics of, of this peace process, but it's not politics alone. There's a military track that over the past year brought together military officers from the two sides to talk to each other, 
in the in the middle of the war this <laughs> there wasn't much of a conversation it was just like sitting around in a hotel lobby in geneva and looking at each other but over time as as it became clear that the war was coming to to an end these talks intensified and led to a ceasefire agreement that was signed last october so this military track was important to create conditions for the two military coalitions to talk to each other there was a financial track as well. So this this was a dialogue facilitated by the UN uh, that brought together the rival financial authorities. And remember, aside from the political divides that the country that have cut the country since 2014, uh, also the financial institutions have have been divided. So we have a Tripoli based central bank internationally recognized and a rival one. We have two Ministry of Finances and we have oil revenue that is, you know, contested and it's this big golden pot that everybody wants. Over the past two years, the UN has included and and started a financial track negotiation between these rival actors. That also matured, so reached a point where there was a consensus of, you know, both sides not being able to hold on to their respective power and that there needed to be a compromise also on, on the financial issues. So we actually had discussions over a unified budget uh, in the months preceding these peace talks. So that, that was an important contributing factor. So for the East Base authorities of Haftar, there was the carrot, let's say, of agreeing to a political solution in exchange of their funding streams being funded by Tripoli. Uh, on the Tripoli side, there was a carrot of, uh, you know, accepting these financial track um, negotiations in exchange for having um, access to oil revenues, which in the meantime had been seized. Um, so that was that was an important factor. And then there's a political track negotiation that we'd already talked about. But then the overarching all of this, there was an international track. So this is called the Berlin Conference. Uh, there were preparations, meetings leading up to this this conference that was that Germany hosted uh, January uh, last year. But there were follow-up meetings as well. So essentially, it was a, a, a track that involved all the foreign stakeholders uh, that are uh, have a vested interest in Libya, essentially. So it kept them all on board. And it's this multi-track negotiation that, um, that I think contributed to creating the conditions for this solution um, that we're seeing playing out today. Really fascinating. And in your most, most recent briefing report, you talk about the fact that uh, many of the proceedings were available online for Libyans to observe and to watch back home. Uh, did many Libyans uh, take part? Did they watch what was happening uh, during these negotiations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, not so much in, in the negotiations themselves were, were not uh, live streamed. Uh, what was uh, live stream was um, uh, at the UN talks, the voting the voting process, so the last few days, the candidates presenting themselves on TV and giving a short speech and answering questions. So it was really the first time in many, many years that, that Libyans from home, from their cell phone, could tune in and it really created a, a moment of participation, even though indirect. It gave a sense of transparency, even though that's just a, an illusion of transparency, right? Um, so so that, was, uh, that really changed the morale 
morale in Libya. And it wasn't just a UN forum that was televised or live streamed. Subsequent to that, we saw the meeting, this joint meeting of the of rival parliamentary blocs live streamed as well. Uh, you know, the debates there and the questions and the controversies were also aired. Live stream is the way to go and it creates this. <laughs> Uh, political participation. So, Claudia, there's the new government, but as we talked about up top, you know, it's got a pretty formidable uh, to-do list. What are some of the things that we should be looking out for? What are the, some of the things that will determine how much of a success it is? First of all, we have to see if in the next two months the, the government is able to turn around the delivery of basic services. This means, you know, guaranteeing better provision of electricity, the inflation doesn't skyrocket, there is cash in the banks. Libyans will want to see their daily lives uh, improve. On the military front, there are also a list of priorities. There's a limited time frame for the Beba government to get rid of these foreign mercenaries. That will have to be one of the priorities. This doesn't necessarily mean, you know, completely getting the Turks out overnight, uh, but at least having a symbolic, some symbolic progress towards the demobilization of foreign forces. This government is a bit weak on the military side of things. The one ministry where where Dbeiba didn't appoint a minister is the defense ministry, because he says they haven't found the right candidate that was acceptable to both sides. So we'll, it, you know, and he took he took this portfolio for himself. That can't last long, and Dbeiba will have a lot of issues to 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 deal with, and he can't be the minister of defense as well. So they'll have to first of all appoint a minister of defense. The other priorities on the financial side of things, uh, it'll be key for Dbeiba to change the oil revenue allocation system. Remember, back in September, the U.S. and the U.N. backed. Uh, what is called a temporary mechanism uh, for oil revenues, which essentially froze Libya's oil revenues uh, into a temporary account. This is an ad hoc system that was only supposed to last a few months in order to facilitate the creation of a new government. And it is essential for the new authorities to return to a normal streamlining process. But, and here, here's the, here lies sort of perhaps the Achilles heel, you know, Beba is a businessman. He has probably made a lot of promises about contracts and wanting to reconstruct, but he has to really be careful and pace himself uh, and, and draw a fine line between boosting the economy and overspending and not being able to, to afford that. So that should be something that we should be looking at. More broadly, looking at the international scene, I think what we have to look at is to see how this uh, de-escalation, regional de-escalation goes. I mean, so far it, we, we've seen, you know, tremendous progress. We've seen the Gulf, uh, the Gulf divide uh, sort of end. We've, we've seen reapprochement between um, UAE and Qatar. We've seen the initial signs of a conversation uh, taking place between uh, Turkey and Egypt. So if this positive momentum continues on a regional scale, uh, certainly there will be positive side effects uh, for Libya as well. So we have to keep, a, keep, an eye, uh, keep an eye on that. And last thing, I think we have to keep an eye on um, what the UN does, because this has been a change of guard. There's a new special envoy, Jan Kubisch, who has replaced Stephanie uh, Williams, uh, a new, you know, a 
no, I wouldn't say a new approach, but a new character, a new personality. So we want to see the UN as engaged and as hands-on as they were in, in the past. Again, they need there, there needs to be a balance between giving, uh, you know, the Libya the Libyans and the Libyan uh, new political authorities you know, the right to 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 um, to trace their own future, but there needs to be sustained engagement. There shouldn't be a hands-off uh, approach. And there's still no agreement on a roadmap to elections. There needs to be, there need to be new laws. There need to be practical steps implemented. And we need to be pushing Libyan authorities in taking those steps, because otherwise we won't have elections at the end of this year, uh, but they and I think we should accept that probably that will not happen, but we shouldn't let the ball drag on for too long. I mean, the momentum uh, needs to be kept and, and vigilance, and we need to help uh, reach uh, the date of elections sooner rather than later. Claudia, thank you so much. That was a really very, very rich discussion. And uh, I mean, really great to have some good news on the podcast for a change. Thank you. So, Naz, what do you take away from the conversation? Indeed, Richard, uh, I thought that Claudia did a wonderful job of illustrating for us what has been happening in these intense few weeks of negotiations and decisions. I thought that her description of the multi-track process was really fascinating, the way that there was a military track, a political one, a financial one, and how these conversations multi-layered and in conjunction with one another set the stage for the remarkable events of the last few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it maybe holds lessons for, for, for peacemaking in other places as well. I mean, there's the tracks that you talked about, which I think are, you know, are, are really important. And we also didn't talk about it so much, but from what I understand it, that the, the, although there were only 75 delegates, it was quite an inclusive bunch. So it wasn't just representatives of the two warring parties which of course is what the UN is, has been doing and it's still doing essentially in, in Yemen. And we, we talked about that a few weeks ago. But actually in Libya, you know, there were people from, from different parts of society, from groups that, that hadn't been fighting, women's groups and uh, even sort of remnants of Gaddafi loyalists. You know, that itself is, uh, is interesting. Absolutely. And I thought also it was interesting, the reference to sort of all this live streaming that's going on and the idea that for Libya, for so long, uh, the internet and social media has been part of the of the basis for the conflict, has been fueling much of the conflict. And now it seems as though Libyans can, can tune in to see um, some remarkable political shifts that are occurring on the ground. I mean, the other thing that's interesting is the, is the sort of regional politics that Claudia talked about. As we discussed, Libya has long been this place where the rivalry between the Emirates and Egypt on one hand and Turkey and Qatar on the other have sort of played out this sort of, you know, the rivalry that was embodied in some ways in the Gulf Corporation Council rivalry and split. But as Claudia says, it seems that the Emiratis have sort of pulled back their support from Haftar. Egypt also appears to have been sort of quite helpful behind the scenes with the UN. And I guess the sort of question is how much this does signal that the end of the GCC spat and maybe the tougher line, tougher signaling by the Biden administration that, that, that Claudia talked about, whether whether that's paying dividends or whether it's simply sort of the Emirates recalibrating in the region, you know, shifting priorities from Libya to elsewhere, uh, you know, and whether there's still, you know, I think still quite a lot of bad blood between the Emirates and and uh, and, and Qatar. And maybe it's just, you know, it's not playing out in Libya but it's sort of far from over. I think that that sort of remains to be to be seen. The other interesting bit, of course, was, you know, Turkey, as we as we talked about. I mean, this really was at the time, I mean, was end of 
2019, I guess, where it was really quite a risky gamble, you know, especially sending these these sort of Syrian allied Syrian forces. Um, you know, the Turkish, as, as Claudia will say, they'll say it wasn't an aggressive operation. It was about countering Haftar's aggression against an internationally recognized government. It was about balancing the influence of others. It was about filling a gap left by Europeans. You know, so, so that, you know, the Ankara had a had a sort of defense for what it was doing. You know, Turkey has this more more assertive stance in many different places. But there has been this string of sort of reasonably successful, from Ankara's perspective, reasonably successful interventions. So you got in Syria, you know, Turkey deterred this offensive by uh, Damascus and Russia in Idlib in the northwest. In Nagorno-Karabakh, of course, Turkish support was, was really important to Azerbaijan in, in the fighting that saw it capture back a lot of territory. And, you know, obviously a lot can still happen in Libya. But right now, Erdogan's uh, gamble seems to have paid off. What this means for Ankara, I think, is also, uh, you know, also interesting. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of Claudia's work and our work on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. And thanks especially to all our listeners. Please do leave us a question or comment, a rating or review, and we hope you all join us again next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.